So Exodus chapter 1, starting at verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. The people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So from the time I was about 10 years old, I always wanted to drive. And I looked forward to the day that I would get my permit and be able to drive a car. And uh, so at my 16th birthday, first thing I did was go down to the DMV, take the test to get my permit, and then I was driving all around. Uh, I took a driver's course. Um, every chance that my parents would give me, I drove. And then on my 17th birthday, my parents told me that they had a special present in store for me. I had no idea what it was, and I was really looking forward to it and wondering what it might be. And so they, it's cut, my birthday comes, and they take me outside to the backyard to the swimming pool. And they say, your present is in the pool. And I see this little orange thing on the bottom of the pool. So I jump in and get it, and it's a set of car keys. And so I, then I go to the front yard, and I see their old car, their old car, and they had put orange pinstripes on it for me, and they were giving me their old car. Now, most teenagers, if that happened to them, they would be thrilled. They'd be like, all right, let's take this puppy for a ride, and you'd probably never see them again. I didn't respond that way. I responded a little differently. I started crying and told them that I didn't want it. You see, I somehow, I, in my mind, I thought that it meant that they were trying to get rid of me. It's like, Here the, here's the car, now get out. So I'm like, no, I don't want it. I just take it back. I, I, I don't need it. Now, that was a pretty cool birthday present. Um, Probably the best birthday present I'll ever get, in terms, at least in terms of value. But to me, it seemed kind of 
like a curse. And sometimes blessings in our lives can feel like curses. And I think that's what's happening here in this passage. God had promised Abraham a number of things. He promised that he would make him a great nation. In Genesis chapter 12, it says, as as God is commanding him to leave his country, he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In Genesis chapter 15, God takes Abraham outside and he takes him out at nighttime. And he says to him, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. And so we see in this passage that God is fulfilling this promise that he made to Abraham. In verse 7 of chapter 1 it says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the, whole, the land was filled with them. So God is fulfilling his promise. He's showing himself faithful to his covenant that he made with Abraham. But at least initially for the people of Israel, it felt a lot more like a curse than a blessing. See, the new Pharaoh that comes to power, it says, doesn't know Joseph. It doesn't know all that Joseph did for Egypt. And so he's afraid of the Israelites. They become a strong, numerous people. And oftentimes in our lives and in society, that's often what happens. We fear people we don't know, and so we kind of vilify them. We ascribe negative characteristics to them, and then we persecute them. That's kind of how society treats those that we don't know or those that are different. And that's how Pharaoh treats the Israelites. They become numerous. They become a potential threat. And so he's vilifying them, and he's persecuting them. And so he does three things. The first thing he does is is that he tries to work them to death. He gets a little bit more bold and he tells the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male babies that that would be born. Then he gets downright brutal and commands all his people to throw the Israelite newborns into the Nile. It doesn't really feel like a blessing for the people of Israel. It seems more like a curse. For some of us, as we've started to follow after God, sometimes it feels a little bit more like a curse than a blessing. Sometimes as we begin a new relationship with Christ, maybe it means that our relationships with our friends are redefined, or maybe we even lose our relationships with friends or loved ones. Maybe it even costs us our job. In 1927, the famous uh, Essayist and poet T.S. Eliot became a Christian and became became baptized and confirmed. And he was part of an elite group called the Bloomsbury Group in England. And this was a group of thinkers and artistic types. But after he became a Christian, he was rejected by that group. The leader of the group said this, I have had a most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Eliot, who may be called dead to us from this day forward. He has become a believer in God and immortality, and he goes to church. I was shocked. A corpse would seem more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene in living in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. So when we become believers, it sometimes changes how people view us. And sometimes people might think that we're crazy, that we're fanatical, that we're not very intelligent. 
Or even if we have been a believer for a long time, sometimes we face challenges in our life and it seems like following after God can be difficult. After I decided to follow God uh, to serve in ministry and I went to seminary, the devil started to unleash everything that he could to destroy me and derail my future ministry. I remember going to an orientation at that seminary. I've told this before. I remember going to an orientation and the preacher said, he said, do not be surprised when Satan starts attacking you. Do not be surprised when you experience spiritual warfare because you are forever forfeiting the right to remain anonymous to the enemy. You're giving your life to follow after Christ in ministry and he's going to do everything he can to destroy you. And that's true as... We opened this church. Shortly before opening this church, uh, my parents were kind of the first people that kind of came on board and said, yeah, we're going to help you with this task. And before we started the church, all these things started happening. I think there was at least three different things. I don't remember all of them, but all these coincidences started happening. One of them was they had a fish tank, a 75-gallon fish tank. They'd had it for uh, 11 years. It actually used to be mine. And they got a new filter on it, and they put the filter on, and it had been fine all this time. But then it started to overflow and basically flooded the house, uh, you know, causing damage to the, you know, not the whole house, but it caused damage and mold and whatnot. And that was just one of the things that started happening as they decided they were going to follow after God and support uh, this ministry. And then for us as a church, we had an amazing launch service in 2013. A number of people come out and really felt God's favor, but we started to face opposition right off the bat, sometimes from the most unlikeliest of sources. When we follow after God, it brings us face to face with opposition. Satan will do everything that he can to destroy us, and sometimes the blessings that we receive in Christ might feel for a time like curse, like a curse. First Peter 1 First uh, Peter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Sometimes blessings can feel like curses. That's the first thing this passage teaches us. But not only can they feel like curses, but this passage also teaches us that no one can stop God's plans for His people. No one can stop God's plans for His people. Look at a little bit closer at the Pharaoh's actions and his plot against the Israelites. It began in a paranoid sort of fear. What if the Israelites rebel against us? What if we get in a war with another uh, foreign power and they decide to support the foreign power and then they leave us? We don't have any workers. They could have, he could have said, on the other hand, well, we have all these people. We have the people of Israel. They're our allies. They're going to support us. They're going to be soldiers for us. They're going to fight with us. But he interprets it negatively and he has this paranoid fear and so he begins this brutal brutal uh, plan of population control. Apparently for, for the first step of this, he believed that working the people hard would cause the population to dwindle. We don't know exactly why he thought this to be. Maybe they, he thought that the pro, their procreative energy would be expelled. They would be simply too tired to have intercourse. We don't know exactly what he was thinking, but this is his plan to curb the population. 
But despite this first plan, it says in the text that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and they spread abroad. So that's the first plan, but that plan doesn't work, and so he goes to the midwives. He's a little bit more bold, but it seems like he's still trying to be a little bit secretive. He doesn't want to let his plan out of the bag to cause an uprising or whatnot. And so he tells these midwives, Pua and Shipra, to kill all the male boys, the males that are born to the Israelites. Now, there's a few questions we don't know the answers to. First, we don't know if these midwives were Hebrews or if they were Egyptians that just served the Hebrews. I'm more inclined to think that they were Egyptians that served the Hebrews. We don't know that for sure. And we don't know why he comes to just two of them, two midwives. It could have been that they were kind of the head of the midwives and they kind of represented them. But despite that, despite his plan, despite this kind of subvert plan to make it seem like maybe they, you know, after the Israelites had their children, maybe the midwife kills the baby, makes it seem like it's an accident. We don't know exactly how that was going to work, but the midwives would have no part of it. It says in the text that they feared God. And so then when the second plan doesn't work, he goes on to a third plan, getting even more bold, and he says, all the newborn male Israelites shall be thrown into the Nile. And he commands all his people to throw them in the Nile. But as we'll see as we move on to chapter 2 next week, even that plan will fail. As As we'll see throughout the book of Exodus, there's kind of a battle. And the battle is not between Pharaoh and Israel. The battle is between Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and the true God, Yahweh. And this battle is going to go on. And throughout Exodus, we'll see that the true God, the God of the Israelites, is greater than Pharaoh and his gods. And we see this even in this first chapter. Pharaoh believes that by working the Israelites to death, he can control their womb and prevent conception from occurring. But God demonstrates that he's the one that opens and closes the womb. And despite Pharaoh's best efforts, the Israelites produce more and more offspring. Pharaoh believed that he can control who lived and who died. But God demonstrates that he'll protect his people. Pharaoh believed that he could destroy the babies by commanding that the babies be thrown into the Nile and being left to the elements. Yet God shows himself to be in control of the forces of nature. That as we'll see in the next chapter, the leader of Israel, Moses, will be saved through the Nile. The one who would lead God's people out of slavery. And so this shows us that no one can stop God's plans for his people. But a few thousand years later, there'll be a similar story. A few thousand years later, another king would also murder that all the male children would be born in Bethlehem. Once again, that king would fail. Thirty years later, Jesus would be crucified, being cursed by God. Yet through this curse, it would mean blessing to the world. And through it, he would defeat sin and death once and for all, proving that no one can stop God's plans for his people. So this passage teaches us a couple things. And I think there's a couple ways that we can apply this passage to our lives. The first way that we can apply it to our lives is that we can never fight against God and God's plans. 
Pharaoh thought that he could control his own destiny. It says in the text that he was trying to use his own wisdom, his own uh, craftiness, his own shrewdness. And he thought that he could quell any threats against him by his own wisdom. But despite his best efforts, he encountered obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. Some of us here, maybe we're fighting against God. Maybe we don't like the lot that we've been dealt in life. We don't like some things that have happened to us. And we're trying to do life in our own strength, thinking that we, by our craftiness, by our wisdom, we can control our lives. We can protect ourselves. We can nullify any threats against us. Others of us, maybe we've tried following after Jesus. We've tried the whole Christian thing. And it seems like as we've done that, that things have just gotten worse and so we've given up. Trying to live life on our own. Maybe we're believers today and we face difficulties in our life. And rather than running with those things to God, we've turned to addictions to try to help us cope with those things. To try to satisfy our hearts. But when we do those things, we can't win. Our wisdom will never be enough. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 and 20 says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. We can't outsmart God. We can't live life on our own, by our own wisdom. March 10th, 1974, Lieutenant Hiro Onada was the last uh, World War II uh, general to, or soldier to surrender. Onada had been left on the island of Lumbag in uh, 1944 on December 25th. He was given a command to carry out his mission no matter what happened. Even if Japan surrendered, he was to carry out his mission for the Empire of Japan. And so, after some time, Japan surrendered. And everyone tried to convince him to give up the fight. They brought out big loudspeakers into the jungle. Said, surrender. Japan has surrendered. America is now an ally of Japan. They dropped leaflets with information describing how Japan had surrendered. 13,000 men were used to try to locate him in the jungle. Over a half a million dollars was used to trying to locate him, convince him to surrender. But he wouldn't surrender. He ate off the land. He would eat people's crops and then run back into the jungle. He killed 30 people during his time in the jungle. But finally, after 30 years, 1974, he decided he was going to surrender. He took his sword that was once brand new, that was now rusty, and at the command of one of his former superior officers who read the ceasefire to him, he surrendered. He handed his sword over to the president and pardoned him, pardoned, who pardoned him. He was 22 years old when he entered into the jungle. When he came out, he was 52. After this ordeal, he made this comment. He said, nothing pleasant happened in the 29 years in the jungle. Nothing pleasant ever happened in the jungle. 
for us as believers. Nothing ever happens good in the jungle. Nothing ever happens good when we're trying to live life on our own. Nothing good ever happens when we fail to surrender to the King of Kings who has power over the whole world and our lives. And it's almost silly that we even need to talk about this as if fighting against God and His plans would be something that would even cross our minds. But it's something that we can fall into even as believers when things don't go our way, when things get difficult. So that's the first thing. That we can't fight against God, that we must surrender to Him and His plans. Second, this passage is an encouragement to us as believers because it reminds us that God's plans for His people can't be thwarted. As we follow Jesus, and sometimes as we follow Him, following Him might seem like a curse. It seems like maybe things bad, bad things might happen to us. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. This passage reminds us that God will not fail us. He will not let us down. And as believers, we know that one day Jesus is going to come back and He's going to make all things right. He's going to take us to be with Him. New heaven and a new earth. And we must also remember that God is faithful to His people and God will reward us for His faith. Remember in this passage it said that God looked with favor upon these midwives, Shipra and Pua, who might have been Egyptians, might have been pagans. But they had faith and feared the true God. And it says that God looked with favor upon them, then God blessed them, God gave them families because of what they did. And when we put our faith in Christ, even when it's difficult, God will bless us, God will reward us. Not just with material things in this earth, but with the joy of knowing Him, the joy of being used by Him, the joy of having fellowship with Him. No one can stop God's plans for His people. All the powers of the world, all the things that we might fear are nothing compared to our God. In Psalm 46, 6-10, it says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, He utters His voice, the earth melts, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 1971, the Afghan government of Afghanistan gave us a very small group of Christians the ability to have a place to meet. Uh, and it was to be agreed upon that this would be a place only for foreigners, that foreigners could meet as Christians in this place, but there couldn't be any nationals there. And so they had this church building to meet. It was the only church building permitted on neutral soil in Afghanistan. But one Sunday morning, three years after the sanctuary of this church was dedicated, these soldiers came out of the church and they started breaking down a wall between the street and the church building. One gentleman in the congregation went to the mayor of Kabul and prophetically warned, if your government touches that house of God, God will overthrow your government. The, government, the mayor responded by ordering the destruction of the church building. And so they commanded the congregation to turn over the building to be destroyed. But they refused to do so. 
They said, this is God's house and we can't turn it over. So even as the soldiers were breaking down this building and destroying it, they were out serving them tea and cookies. This was July 17th, 1973, that the soldiers completed the construction of the church building. But that very night, as God would have it, King Mohammed Sahir Shah, who had ruled Afghanistan for 40 years, was overthrown. The 227-year-old monarchy in Afghanistan came to an end forever. See, God can do what He wants. God has the power over people who have so much more power and authority than we do. But there's nothing that God can't do. There's no one that is... In, nobody that can stop God's plans for His people. That anybody that we fear, anyone that we fear might harm us that has power over us, we do what God has called us to do. He'll work His plan through us. He'll reward us. He'll be our delight. And He'll never let us down. He'll never fail us. Sometimes blessings could feel like curses, but no one can stop God's plan for His people. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You are a God who knows us. A God who loves us. A God who is a perfect Heavenly Father. And God, we thank You that not only do You love us, but You are powerful and holy and mighty. That You're stronger than anything that we might face in our lives. That You're stronger than any king or any kingdom in this world. And God, we thank You that You'll never let us down. That as we follow you, you'll work your plans. Even when it seems difficult. Even when your plans seem like a curse. Lord, that we know that you're working for our good and for your glory. God, as we live our lives, God, we pray that we would surrender to your plan, to your ways. That we would live our lives in step with you. And Lord, that we'd be encouraged to know that you're with us and that you'll never let us down. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.